You're listening to Chameleon Church. Biblical antidotes for the modern man. With your host, Alan Aguirre. A Faceless Gen production. of the kingdom shows up actually more than 30 times just in the, the gospel of Matthew and it is everything now it's probably the most important thing we need to understand and others would argue oh well the cross is more important well there's a reason why he went to the cross he didn't just die on the cross and rise again just because the problem does actually begin there because for way too long, we're talking centuries, the process and the concept of the cross and, and the resurrection has been really the focus of, of the church and what they do with their people, the church as a whole, mainstream Christianity as we've discussed before. And it's known as the gospel of salvation. The problem with that is you won't find the gospel of salvation anywhere in the Bible. You won't find it. The term gospel of salvation isn't in there. Our foundation is based on the gospel of salvation. Jesus died on the cross for your sin and made a way for you not to go to hell. And then he rose from the grave so that you can go to heaven with him. That's not what he did that for. I mean, he tells us very clearly. If you you look up the kingdom of heaven just in your gospel of Matthew... And if you read it with just a basic layman's understanding and study it at face value, you'll see that he had a whole entirely different agenda than just dying on the cross so that you don't go to hell. The gospel of salvation has stunted and, well, it's it's polluted what the actual intent of God for us is. Because it's all about, the gospel of salvation is about you getting saved and not going to hell anymore. And that's about it. And you're good to go. Just be a good person. It's a morality play. It is the farthest thing from the scriptural truth out there. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus came here for. He came to establish a concept, uh, a mentality that we just aren't, we're not interested in it. And we, have, we, we don't want anything to do with it because, well, no one teaches really on it. The gospel of the kingdom, it includes sal- the gospel of salvation, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel of salvation does not, there's no room for transformation. 
in the gospel of salvation because that now requires discipleship and there's very little to no discipleship the last I mean well for a very long time obviously we have more splinter groups and denominations today than we did a hundred years ago that's because of the gospel of salvation the gospel of the kingdom is a whole it's a foreign concept to us because it actually deals with now what what are my responsibilities now that I'm saved and it has everything to do with transformation and it has everything to do with preparing a planet for the return of the Lord for the return of Jesus because that's why he rose from the dead so that he can come back and judge judge what? well, what you've been up to since you got saved those are Jesus' very own words we can find them in the parable of the minas. We find it in the parable of the talents. So the gospel of the kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, is a, is a subject matter that I'm very, very... Man, I, it's everything. It is everything. And here's why it's everything. Because the gospel of the kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, is designed and set up in a way that it permeates every aspect of your life whether it's recreational relational physical financial spiritual mental psychological every possible facet of your being here on this planet is supposed to be touched and altered and transformed by the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So, it's not very hard for, for me, for ex- and here's why I say what I'm about to say. I've been teaching and discipling, a- applying, learning, and, and, and actively, proactively working with this, the kingdom of heaven, for, I'm going on, what, seven years now? Four, five, six, yeah, six or seven years. So it's a very important topic to me, and there's reasons why, and it's a very intimate topic to me. Gospel of the kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, determines what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing tomorrow. It is the key. Christianity is so nebulous, and it's such a, it's like you can't understand it. All these things, I mean, the, the, the things I hear out there by all these different groups, it's amazing. These are the keys of truth that can unlock what God has intended for you, what God intended for man since the garden. I mean, this is the whole plan. This is the game plan. And so it's easy for someone like me to hang out with you, talk with you, look at you, and determine whether or not you have any clue about what it is we're going to be talking about these next few weeks. Because how you talk, how you carry yourself, your attitude, the air about, everything about you tells me, or tells us, how, whatever word or whatever phrase I can use that isn't insulting or demeaning or making you upset with me right now, determines whether or not you have any understanding about what it is this thing's about. 
it's a game changer. It, the countenance of the Lord is supposed to be upon us. And when the countenance of the Lord isn't on you, it's a dead giveaway. It just really is. What are we talking about? Your relationships, your business, your job, your children, your marriages. If, even if you're single. I mean, all of that, everything, how you worship, how you don't worship, whether you stand up, whether you clap, whether you raise your hands, all of that are telltale signs of you knowing or not understanding what it is we're going to be talking about this next few weeks. The kingdom of heaven. Why? Why do I say that? That's a, that's a bold statement to some people. Well, because in Matthew, in at least 30 plus verses, it tells me how I'm supposed to be. How I'm supposed to be walking and living and interacting. How I'm supposed to be processing information. How that information is supposed to be coming out of me. It's all right here. It's not that difficult. The problem is, we're not interested. Because it's going to require things from us and of us that we're just not, we're not willing to do. So this thing, the, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom, is God's actual blueprint for what it is you're supposed to do and be when you made a choice to align yourself with Jesus. And it's a lot easier to, well, seemingly, it's a lot easier to align yourself with Jesus than it is to align yourself with the will of God. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus says to all those that said, Hey, (laughs) I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I raised the dead in your name. How can you possibly say that you don't know me? These people thought they had a relationship with Jesus, and he says, I don't know you because you don't do the will of my Father. What's the will of the Father? To love him with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, being. And when we do that, when we walk in that alignment, it does and will transform your life. So the lack of transformation is a lack of relationship with the Father. And that's, I mean, you can see that everywhere. So, the blueprint starts in the Garden of Eden. This is a little primer. I'm gonna just, we're just going to skip through things, you know, give you a little picture of what it is we're going to talk about. Because... In order for you to understand it and to apply it, the practical application of Scripture in your life, if you're even interested, is going to take some some depth of understanding. And it encompasses the entire Word of God. The entire counsel of the Word of God. In the garden, Adam was given physical authority over animal life on the land, in the ocean, in the air, plant life. He was given spiritual authority He was given dominion. And he relinquished it to Lucifer when he disobeyed. When he decided that he was going to disobey God. And so this whole thing has been about God making a way for us to get back on track and on board with what he originally intended for for man to do and be on this planet. You gotta remember, we're on occupied territory. This is not our planet. The owner of this planet hates you. 
absolutely hates you with a passion you can only dream of. He hates you so much that he will do everything in his power to keep you from understanding what I'm about to tell you. Because if you don't understand this, he wins. He ends up wiping out humanity because they would not align with this concept. It's a very important concept to God because this concept is a make it or break it. It's a deal breaker. It's a life or death deal. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my kings and my priests. And I'm going to be your God or you will die. And so he creates a people group unto himself to pour this essence and this understanding into And he structures it in a way for them to be able to successfully walk in the understanding of the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And he establishes a whole way for these people to be able to walk in this revelation. Torah. The instructions that God gave to Moses. Right? So he creates this people group unto himself. Why do I say that? Because he takes two Gentiles, Abram and Sarah, and creates a people group known as the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the Jews. And we know it's spiritual because they have a DNA marker no other people group on this planet has. And it came from two Gentiles. And there's a reason why he created a race of humans on earth for himself. And that was to combat the demonic strain of humanity that was on the earth at the time that survived the flood that is still with us today and that will manifest itself in ways you'll never even imagine that are way beyond the sci-fi movies you've ever seen in the coming years because the book says so then through Moses these people don't know it yet But they're going to go into the land of Canaan. They know that much. To some extent, they know they're going to go and fulfill this prophecy of the land, of the promise that was given to Abraham. But in order to do that, because what they don't know is that the land of Canaan is swarming, occupied, and possessed by hybrids. (laughs) They're not completely all human. How do we know that? Well, there's giants in the land. What kind of giants? Goliath giants? No, Goliath is a dwarf compared to these giants. These are the descendants of the Nephilim. And they're listed. There's like five of them. Five tribes. And they have to go into the land to dispossess it to accomplish his will, the kingdom of heaven on earth. But in order to do so, they're going to have to spend 40 years in the desert learning, training, and going through the cycles of understanding and obedience and alignment in order to to pull this off. And when they finally get there, we find out they don't do the entire job. They don't do the campaign. What's What's the goal once they get there? Dispossess, completely annihilate seven nations and 34 kingdoms of the demonic strain of humanity on the earth. Not to intermix with them, not to mix with other colors, not to adapt their customs, their ways, 
not to adapt their religious pagan ways into the worship of Adonai, and they do. And so, that culminates with Jesus, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, to make a way to reconcile man unto God, and to give us the wherewithal to actually do what modern Christianity tells us was impossible. And that's to obey God by obeying the law, which you'll never find in the Bible. Because the law itself says it's not unattainable, it's not such a far-reaching, you know, it, that, that you can't do it. That's, that's not fair. Isn't he the God that gives us bread instead of stone and fish instead of rock? Why would he tell us and instruct us and make us, I'll use the word make, us do something that we can't do? Well, that's not his nature. And even First John says, the love of God is to keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. So it is possible to obey God based on his prescribed method, keeping the commandments. So the kingdom of heaven is all about, when it comes down to it, this, our minds. We're humans. We don't do what we don't like to do. So I usually ask people, do you like beets? No. Do you eat them? No. Why? Because I don't like them. Well, of course. I don't like getting up in the morning and running five miles. Do I get up in the morning and run five miles? No. (laughs) I don't do that. We do not do what we do not like to do. In the same way, we do do what we like to do. So if you're fornicating, you're doing it because you like it. If you're an adulterer or an adulteress, it's because you like it. If you're a thief, you steal because you like to steal. If you're a liar, you lie because you like to lie. Make sense? It's not because the devil made me do it. So the kingdom of heaven, based on what Jesus teaches us in the book of Matthew, is all about the transforming of our minds, our thought patterns, how we process information, how we regurgitate information, permeating every aspect of our life and our lifestyle to determine whether we're His or not. So, let's start off real quickly. And You know what? I didn't set my alarm. That's right. I'm watching. All right. <laughs> I got it covered. That's awesome. Everywhere I go. It doesn't matter what state I'm in, it happens. We're going to start briefly here in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. We like to call it Torah on the top. It starts in chapter 5 with Torah, with the instruction to obey Torah. And it ends with Torah. So we all know about, you know, if you're, if you're smart and wise, you're going to build your house on a rock. Uh, the man that built his house on sand, the waves came and destroyed it. We all know that. But what we don't know is that we're supposed to tie that in with the instruction of the previous three chapters, which was all Torah. The man that's wise heeds the instruction of Torah, based on what Jesus says in the end of chapter 7. The foolish man does not heed the instruction of Torah. And when it gets rough, well, the house crumbles. And unfortunately... We as Christians have the, we tend to crumble when it gets rough. That's just what we do. 
because our foundation is not in the, in the commandments of the Father. We're not in alignment with the gospel of the, of the kingdom. So in verse 25 of chapter 6, he's talking about what it's, how to live, how you're supposed to live. He's talking about money. You can't serve two masters. He's talking about wealth. Remember, this stuff is, supposed, this stuff is going to impact every aspect of your life. Because if Jesus doesn't impact every aspect of your life, either he's a liar or you're not on board with his agenda. So in verse 25, he says, if I can find it here, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life or take no care. Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds flying about. They neither plant nor harvest, nor do they gather food into, into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than, the, than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why be anxious about clothing? Think about the fields of wild irises and how they grow. They neither work nor spin thread. Yet I tell you that even Shlomo or Solomon in all his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. If this is how God clothes grass in the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown in an oven, won't he much more clothe you? What little trust you have? Or, in some of your translations, O ye of little faith. So don't be anxious, asking, What will we eat? What will we drink? Or how will we be clothed? For it is the pagans who set their hearts on all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows you need them all, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough problems already. I decided to start with this verse because Jesus is very clearly and very plainly and very simply saying to seek first the kingdom of His Father, to seek first the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness that is a part of that, His Father's righteousness. And when you seek His kingdom and His righteousness, your needs, your provision, all these things will be taken care of. Now, I don't know where you, where you might have heard that before, but I know where I've heard that before. Moses. God tells the people of Israel, here's my Torah, here's my instruction, here are my commandments. If you obey these commandments and live by them, you will have a good life. And the other reason why I wanted to start with this verse was because I know we worry. I know we get anxious about our provision, employment, our bills, how are we going to feed our kids, how are we going to make our electric bill, how are we going to put gas in our car. I mean, come on. Even people with money worry about money. Why? And as believers, why? Why do we do that? Because we're not thinking with the right stuff. We're doing what Jesus told us not to do. Don't be like the pagans, he says. 
Don't be pagan in your thinking when it comes to the things of this earth. You shouldn't even be worried about your life on this earth. He says, take no thought of your life. Don't worry about your life. But we do, like pagans. Why? Because we do not have the kingdom of heaven within us. It's just that simple. When we do have the kingdom of heaven within us, as we'll find out in the coming weeks, you don't have to worry about these things or become anxious about them. That's just a simple truth. So in 2006, uh, the type of work that I do, when I'm not doing music, I, I do stuff on the internet, on the interweb, on the Google. No, I don't send metadata to the government. And um, our slow time usually kicks in around mid-November into mid-January. You won't find any work. And if you do, it's very rare. So your slow time kicks in around the end of November, and it's a little scary, you know. 2006, it kicked in in September, and it was pretty scary. No money, no work, no income. Not cool, not good. So I went and got prayed, prayed for by our leadership and our eldership, you know, our pastors and stuff in, Den- in Dallas. And um, I didn't like what I, what I got out of that meeting. What I got out of that meeting was... You need to get deeper with the Lord, brother. Piss off. I need, I need money. <laughs> and that's what they said. You need to get deeper with the Lord. I'm like, well, how am I going to do that? I'm already deep enough. I need, I need something practical here. So about two weeks later, I'm in my garage. My garage in Dallas was very holy. I'm serious, man. That place was holy. There was a definite portal. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I was, man, I was, I was desperate. Desperate, desperate, desperate. And I did the Christian thing. Oh God, I, you know, I, I throw myself at the, the foot of the cross and I start categorically giving things and placing things at the foot of the cross. You know, my intellect, my talents, my abilities, my bank account, my wife, my kids. My need for a job. You know, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? When, you're at, when you get to that point. I mean, you're coming up with stuff that just is ridiculous. And I'm placing all these things at the foot of the cross. I'm very spiritual. I'm really deep in the, in the spirit right now, obviously. And I, I mean, I, I don't know how long I did that for. And so, I mean, I got down to the point where, you know, I have nothing else to lay at the feet of the cross. It was all right there. Anybody ever see Labyrinth? There's a big pile of stuff on the, on the woman's back. No. Anyway, this big pile of stuff is at the foot of the cross. And I'm sitting there waiting on the Lord. I don't know, three, four, five minutes goes by. And then he spoke. And it was the most offensive, the most non-Christian thing. There's two non-Christian things God's told me to do before. This was one of them. He goes, are you done? And I'm, I'm like, what the... Yeah, I'm done. I mean, I was mad. How dare he asking me if I was done? What kind of, you know, that's not cool. What kind of a God is this anyway, right? And he goes, I go, yeah, I'm done. He goes, okay, good. Because all that stuff that you just piled up at the foot of my son's cross, I mean, he's talking to me like that. That's not for you to give me. It's already mine. You bring nothing to the table. 
And that changed my life. If I don't have anything to bring to the table, then, then what am I going to do? I'm the guy that has always has something to bring to the table. And he said, you, you bring nothing to the table. Wow. And I just fell on my face and cried out for mercy. Mercy, mercy. About two, three months later, still no money, still no job, he downloaded a... I was on, on the phone with somebody about kind of like a co-op office space thing, kind of thing, weird thing. And I was while I was talking to this guy on the phone, he's trying to pitch me, I start pitching him, and I immediately realize I'm speaking a download, a direct instantaneous download from the Lord. So I immediately start writing down what I'm telling this guy, because I was, God's giving me a business model from heaven that I need to <laughs> write down because this is going to be a brilliant, this is, this is brilliant. Got off the phone, looked at my notes, and I was like, no way. This is amazing. One of my day jobs is I basically, I contract for big, huge, or I used to, contract for big, huge uh, PR firms, you know, agencies, traditional ad agencies. And when the internet collapsed in 2001, there was pretty much no work for anybody for about four years. Towards the end of 2006, things started picking up. Well, around 2006, things started picking up. So now I'm able to get work doing a freelance for big ad agencies where you can go in and... So, I'm the, so what I would do is I'd go in and I'd sit at a desk at one of their cubicles and different ad reps, ad, you know, reps that represent... I mean, I'm talking Gatorade, Honda, Pepsi, big, big brands would come up. Do you know such and such a uh, software project, uh, software program? Yes. Okay, here, and they give you an and they give you an assignment. So I would work in about four or five or six different programs in the course of a day, doing every. I mean, you name it. And this brilliant idea I had was because all the people working for these companies, because their, their their clients are forcing their hand to go interactive and do internet stuff, and they don't have internet departments or anybody in house. So they're hiring people like me to do these big, huge contracts under their name. So this brilliant idea I had was a virtual creative department where I'm going to go find two or three people like me in two or three different disciplines in this industry, and we're going to, and I'm going to sell our little team out to these companies for a hundred plus dollars less an hour and still be able to make a profit. So we were a virtual creative department for both print and, and web. And I went back to my main client who was paying me, you know, like X amount of dollars an hour, like $35 an hour for an individual. And I walked in and I went, oh, by the way, I started a small agency. And uh, I'm going to, you know, so, you're, so I need for you to hire me now as, a, as my agency at my agency rate of creative of $75 an hour. And they said, okay. And then I go, and, uh, and I've got these disciplines under me. And uh, so if you need any of these, I can cover all that. And they go, all right, well, can we put th you and two of your people on this project that we need done in two weeks? I'm like, okay, that's 200 and, what is that, 75 times 3, $210 an hour or something, 225 an hour? And I go, so that's 225 an hour for the three of us. Yes. Okay. The day before, I was making 35 an hour with this 
company as an individual. Now I'm making two twenty-five an hour with three, and I get to put three people. On. It didn't make any sense. Why would they agree to that? Well, I would soon learn why. So this thing's going to blow up. We called it the Riley Agency. This thing's going to blow up. So I called some pastors up. I mean, now we're like in January, February. And I called up a couple of my pastors at church, and I went, who is, in your opinion, the, the most anointed, spiritual, godly businessman in our church? And at this point, this time, our church was still healthy. We still had people there. <laughs> and um, who is, the, who is the, God, the most godliest entrepreneur in our church that you guys can vouch for? I need to meet with him. And they all said the same guy. And he'll be here in less than two weeks. They all said the same guy. So I spent three or four months on the phone with this guy trying to land a meeting. And, you know, he was showing some interest in maybe investing into the company because we needed some, we needed some startup cash because, you know, we weren't able to house two or three employees and these big, huge businesses that we're starting to work for just out of our little home office. I thought, you know, if we had an office, it would, you know, it's Dallas. They don't do the virtual thing very good there. They need to see an actual office to determine that you're really in business, legitimate. They're still behind the curve in Dallas. So... We finally got a meeting with the guy, and 80 minutes, 8 minutes, we finally got a meeting with him. So him and, him and his wife and my wife and I, we sat down and went out to dinner with them. And they said, all right, pitch us. The wife actually said that. Pitch us. I'm like, all right. So I pitched them, told them what we were doing, how we were doing it, why we were doing it, and how this was a brilliant idea and people were buying into it. And... Um, and then after I finished telling him, you know, I told him, we need $75,000 just to get some basic startup costs, get an office open, and blah, blah, blah. And he just goes, man, you're just like one step away. And I'm like, one step away from what? He goes, I can give you the money. If you want, I can give you the money. Or would you rather have God do it all for you? And, I, and we're like, we want God to do everything for us. Because you know what that means? That doesn't mean... God's a sugar daddy. That doesn't mean you're sitting around doing nothing and not being proactive and God just kind of does everything for you. No. That means we want to align ourselves with everything God has for us on this planet. No matter what that may be. No matter what it's going to cost. No matter how hard that might be. And I developed a mantra in those days that I can say very easily right now. I'm not naked on my side. 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 I am not naked on my side because he could require that of me to be in alignment with him for the kingdom of heaven to come to pass on the, on the earth in my realm, in my circle and sphere of influence. He hasn't asked me to be naked on my side yet in the streets of Dallas or Park City or anywhere. So that means anything he requires of me, I'm going to be able to do because I would really suck to be naked on my side for a year. Ezekiel. And so I kept... So that's how I would encourage myself. I'm not naked on my side. I'm not naked on my side because he hasn't asked me to be naked on my side. Yes, we want God to do this for us. We don't want your money. If you can show us how we can get God and get in alignment with God for this thing, you know, for God to do this, a, an intersection with the, the king of the universe for our business, yeah, I want in on that. And so he started telling me about 
a couple things that we ended up, we came up with a name of it. It's called the Joshua Principle. Because when Jesus speaks as a Christian, you at least fundamentally believe that what he spoke is going to come to pass. Raise your hand if you believe that. Right. If you didn't raise your hand, I don't know why you're here because Christianity is not cool. This is not a fun place to be. I can, there's a lot of other things that can go on in town that will be funner than this. Right? We all fundamentally believed at some level that when Jesus speaks, it will come to pass. So he shared this story with me about the disciples who were going to have R&R with Jesus. And instead, Jesus goes, Hey, let's go down here and we're going to hang out, just us, because they had just got back from their first missionary journey. You know, when they went out, when, they, when he first sent them out without a purse or without a cloak. And we're going to go hang out. Well, they saw Jesus and the twelve mobilizing. So the, the, the masses followed them. And they get to this mountain. And he starts preaching to the masses. And it's getting late. And the disciples, who do have an agenda, because they're supposed to be doing private time with Jesus, said, hey, why don't you, tell, why don't you stop? Why don't you call it? Stop talking. It's getting late. These people are hungry. And then they disperse the people. They can go find food and a place to eat in the neighboring villages around the Gilgal, the, the, the Galilee. And he goes, you feed them. Jesus spoke. You feed them. Hopefully we're at the point where we know his voice and we can hear him when he speaks. And they said, we don't have the money to feed them. We don't have the means to feed them. The majority of the time when Jesus tells us to do something... Our first response is based on how many zeros we have in our bank account. We don't have the resources, the money, to do what you're telling us to do or asking us to do. But even before that, the majority of us, and I know this for a fact because I've been around it for too long, think like this. God would never ask me or require of me anything I couldn't do in the practical realm. Wow. What religion is that? Well, it's become Christianity. You feed them. I don't, we don't have the means to feed them. If we're in tune with God at any level, we should be able to hear the next thing He's going to ask us. And that's, what do you have? Well, we've got these five loaves and these two fishes. He takes it. He blesses it. Gives it back to them. And tells them to do what He told them to do in the first place. Feed them. And at some point... It had to kick in. This is working. It's called asa. Make, create. The Hebrew word asa. Create something out of nothing. Working with the substance of creation. These are all, every, all these little spikes, like that one, Deuteronomy 8.18, we will be delving into in this series. Because you have to understand this stuff. You have to, you have to, you have to. Or you'll miss them when he comes. And they fed, they fed 5,000. Then he says, hey, get into the boat, go across the lake, I'll meet you on the other side, I'm going to go up to the mountaintop and pray. So these lifelong fishermen that have lived their entire lives and, and have harvested this lake their entire lives, got into the boat, and they're these crazy headwinds, these crazy storms that happen in the Galilee, and I asked about them. Apparently the topography, it's almost like tornado, it's almost like a tornadic wind that will go through and over in the Galilee. And they're like crazy. So these lifelong fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, it says, were in this headwind, and they were like 
scared out of their minds, scared to death for their lives, they're going to die. Didn't Jesus tell them that He would meet them on the other side of the lake? See, He speaks and the storm comes. He speaks and resistance occurs. He speaks and every possible thing that can go wrong goes wrong. He speaks and every militating force will and can rise up against you to keep you from going forward and try to kill you. Do we defer to our practical reasoning? Do we, go, do, we, do we succumb to the dimensional realm of practicality and say, oh, this is it, I'm done for? Or do we go, no, Jesus said He'd meet me on the other side. I believe that. Because Jesus says, every time you decide to think practically, it's demonic. Because you're not thinking with the Father's mindset. Remember when He told Peter, get behind me, Satan? The next verse. You're not thinking with God's thoughts. You're thinking with your practical reasoning. And He calls that demonic. So, they're scared of their minds. They're going to die. And Jesus, on the top of the mountain, somehow sees through the storm and sees these guys struggling. It's around 4 a.m. And they're only in the middle of the lake. They left around 7. How could they be doing this for that many hours? It's not that big of a lake. I don't know, but it is. They're convinced they're going to die. He sees them. He goes down there. He's walking on the water. They think he's a ghost. They scream, Oh my God, it's a phantom. Because they've never seen Rabbi walk on water. And what happens next? Peter, Rabbi, if Rabbi can walk on water, I can walk on water. We'll get to that, because that's the Rabbi principle. Peter's walking on the water, a wave comes, he relinquishes his spiritual authority, reverts back to his practical reasoning and says, Oh crap, I shouldn't be able to do this, I'm going to die. He starts to sink. And Jesus says what? I don't think it's been taught right. Oh, ye of little faith. No. What he really is saying is, why did you stop believing that you were actually doing what you were doing? You were walking on the water. Then you decided to go into the practical realm and say to yourself, I shouldn't be able to do this. Of course you're not supposed to be able to do this. Hello. And then you started thinking. And see, that's what keeps us from functioning Reasoning, processing, walking and living in the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Our biggest enemy is our practical reasoning. This. Tangible reality. Because tangible reality, you're all idiots for believing in some Jew that rose from the dead? Come on. That's a little far-fetched, isn't it? Yeah, that's insane. And I'm there right there with you. So we want to understand something in through this series is that what we're going to be talking about are how do we in a practical sense, not in our practical reasoning, but in a practical way, how do we apply scripture? The scriptures that we're going to be talking about and looking at that talk about all this and it goes way back to the Old Testament so that we can apply these scriptures, this concept into our life, the concept of the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. So that why? What's the purpose of all this? Well, so that we can walk transformed, fruitful lives. And so that we don't have to be tossed to and fro. So you can actually break your cycles and stop succumbing 
to the elemental spirits of this world and your habitual sin. Transformation. Because that's what Jesus was, that's why he came. That's why he died and that's what he rose for. So that we could live life and life more abundantly in line with the Father and his kingdom and to walk on earth like it's in heaven. To bring heaven down to earth. The gospel of the king's domain. The gospel of the, the realm of the king's domain. Because, and this is where I'll end, you are, and you've heard this, a royal priesthood. A kingly priesthood. You have a king's authority on this earth given to us by our brother Jesus. And your co-heirs, we're joint heirs. We are royal priests. We're kingly priests. Kings expand territory. Priests bring heaven down over that territory. And if our lives aren't reflecting that, in every aspect of our day-to-day, then we're missing it.